Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. George Bent for a conversation about Leonardo da Vinci and his study of the anatomy. We're not only going to speak about his study of the anatomy and uh, the body and some of his uh, famous paintings and drawings, but we're also going to speak more about Leonardo's life, what's known about his belief systems, his disposition, um, his activities and uh, hobbies on the side that may have informed the quality of his artwork. Dr. Bent is Sidney Goss Childress Professor in the Arts at Washington and Lee University in Lexington, Virginia in the U.S. He joins us from Virginia in the U.S. today. He's the author of many publications on art history, including the book Public Painting and Visual Culture in Early Republican Florence, which was published by Cambridge University Press and a DVD series, Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance in Italy, uh, published by The Great Courses Company. Welcome to call, George. Thank you, and thank you for having me, Andrew. Okay, so who was Leonardo da Vinci? Um, well, I, I can answer that in a lot of different ways. <laughs> There's sort of a flippant response that I have, um, Go which for is it. <laughs> grounded in some truth. Leonardo da Vinci was a left-handed gay bastard, um, and and that that uh, trio put him in a pretty tough position when he was growing up and trying to make a name for himself as an artist. Mm. Um, he was unusually ambitious. He was a risk taker. He uh, encountered enormous frustrations and uh, a good deal of failure. In fact, I would, I would argue that one of the reasons why Leonardo turned out to be such a great success in his endeavors was due probably to the fact that he failed so miserably, so frequently, and then was able to pick himself back up again and continue working. Hmm. What are some things that we know about his early life in terms of failure to tie into that uh, comment? So, so as uh, an illegitimate child, as he was, uh, born in not even a village, but a farmhouse outside a remote village, Leonardo grew up understanding that he stood to inherit nothing from his family and therefore would have to make a life on his own. Um, he enjoyed some early, well, I guess some early successes. His, his formal education probably ended by the time he was about 13 or so. Uh, he had very little Latin, no Greek at all, but uh, he had completed what you and I would consider to be a sixth or seventh grade education by the time he was done. Uh, his father took him to Florence to work with probably the most important artist who was then active in the city. His name was Andrea del Verrocchio. And Verrocchio, which literally means of the true eye, Verrocchio taught Leonardo a great deal about um, things like bronze casting, um, drawing, uh, mixing pigments. And the two of them struck up uh, not just a student ma master relationship, but an actual partnership uh, mm. early on in Leonardo's life. So much so that by the time he was 21 or so, Leonardo seems to have been splitting work with Verrocchio, with his master producing sculpture, and Leonardo mm. essentially being responsible for many of the paintings coming out of Verrocchio's workshop. Hmm. What, um, 
what kind of artwork did he produce? He, you, you mentioned um, paintings, um, but was did he produce artwork beyond paintings? Uh, he was um, a, a, a prodigious draftsman. Leonardo was always drawing. Uh, he had sketchbooks. He had uh, loose leaf paper that ultimately become, became notebooks that, that were, were collated after his death. Mm-hmm. He produced pictures in um, mostly in oil paint, which was really unusual for the 1470s and 1480s. He's one of the early practitioners of that technique that had come to Italy from Flanders, probably. Uh, but he also did a number of sculptures. Um, we're pretty sure that he was charged with producing some work in bronze later in his career. Uh, but really, Leonardo, as an artist, is best known for the drawings and for the few paintings that remain from his hand. And there are fewer than two dozen. Hmm. And was he religious at all? Oh, so now you're getting into these thorny, debatable questions. <laughs> um, it's hard to say because Leonardo, while he took copious notes of different things, and while he wrote down the processes that he was engaged in, Leonardo was very careful to uh, limit the personal comments that he dared to write down. And there's a reason for that that we can get into a little bit later on if you want. Hmm. But he was an intensely private person. Um, We don't really know what his religious stance was, but there's some evidence that suggests that later in his life, he basically um, turned away from church teachings. Not, not to say that he was antagonistic or, you know, heretical. It's just that I think Leonardo was a critical soul and, and his own research probably taught him that some traditional teachings just didn't hold water. Hmm. So I think ultimately Leonardo moved away from, from uh, a, a religious stance. What do scholars know about his periphery or perhaps a better term is extra uh, curricular interests that might have informed the uh, the way the types of artwork that he did or the quality of the artwork oh that's interesting so <clears throat> there are more myths about leonardo than there are facts unfortunately <laughs> But um, there is one early description of Leonardo that indicates that he was a spectacularly gifted musician. Hmm. He's reputed to have, uh, uh, on a diplomatic mission for the Florentines, traveled to Milan as a young man with uh, a silver lyre that had been produced to celebrate the elevation of Ludovico Sforza to a position of power in the city of Milan. And we're told that Leonardo took that lyre to Ludovico Sforza at court and in front of a big audience played that that lyre and played it beautifully uh, uh, and impressed everyone uh, uh, in the room. The myths surrounding him include athletic ability, um, um, a gift of gab and poetry, those things, I think, still have to be understood in, in terms of myth and legend. 
Um, you know, there's there's very little evidence to, that suggests that Leonardo could run faster than anybody or jump <laughs> higher. Um, but he does seem to have had a number of different gifts and skills. But you, we also need to recognize that in the 15th century, people are not jotting down in their diaries. You know, I had a really good time flying my kite today. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how did his artwork evolve over time? Yeah, that's a really good question. I believe from the very beginning, Andrew, he was highly experimental. Some recent work done at the National Gallery of Art in Washington mm -hmm. has revealed that one of the very earliest paintings that he participated in was really a grand experiment, one in which multiple artists participated all at the same time. And we think that one of the, the purposes of this experimental collaboration on a painting that's called the Baptism of Christ, that's currently in Florence, uh, was to experiment with oil paint. So from a very, very early age, at the age of 20 or so, Leonardo uh, was taking some risks with this new technique that nobody in the city of Florence had really done very much with. Um, so I would say that, that his development really throughout his career and the last paintings that he's producing are probably being wrapped up by about 1516, 1517 or so, mm -hmm. is really just one long progression of ex one experiment after the other, where he's almost always mm -hmm. trying to do something a little bit differently than he did before. And look, you and I both know that, you know, when you're experimenting with something, whether it be a recipe in the kitchen or a new way to, I don't know, comb your hair, you know, you're going to fail sometimes. You're, you're going to you know, the souffle is going to, going to fold. Um, you're, you're going to comb your hair in a way that reveals the big scar on your forehead. You know, you're going to, you're going to mess up. Leonardo, Leonardo messes up all the time. Um, some of his, his failures are spectacular, but he keeps on going and he keeps on trying. Mm. What's an example of a failure um, in his, in his work that that's, that's apparent. Yeah. So there are two big ones. Um, one which you know and the other which you might not. The one that you know of is The Last Supper. Okay. Um, this is a, a mural painting that Leonardo produces between 1495 and 1498. And it's only on one wall. So taking three years to do a single mural painting on, you know, on one wall is kind of unheard of. And that tells you that he's obviously taking his time to do it. Well, it turns out that, again, conservation has revealed Leonardo was trying all kinds of different techniques all at once. So he was layering both fresco paint, uh, which is pigment on wet plaster, but he was combining it with some oil pigments that he was put, putting onto a drywall. Well, oil and water don't mix very, very well. Plaster and oil sometimes is a weird combination. We're told that within 20 years of The Last Supper's completion, by about 1515 or 1520, a good portion of the Last Supper had flaked off the wall. And there's one record from about 1525 or so that refers to Leonardo's Last Supper as nothing more than just a spot on the wall. Hmm. So by playing around with different pigments, the Last Supper itself was ruined only a couple of decades after it was finished, which means, and I hate to burst people's bubbles, but what you're looking at today 
only about 15 or 20 percent of the last supper that you see today was really done by leonardo everything else has been retouched or repainted by by different hands over time hmm. the other big failure is something that no one's ever seen um leonardo was hired to paint a large fresco inside the palazzo vecchio in florence in 1505 and leonardo decided that this would be a great opportunity to experiment with an ancient Greek technique called encaustic painting, which is basically mixing your pigments with melted wax and then applying the melted wax, the colored melted wax onto your surface and then letting it dry. And, and the Greeks and Egyptians and even Romans had done this to great effect. Well, <laughs> so we're told Leonardo chose to uh, experiment with his technique in the month of July. 1505, which turned out to be one of the hottest, but also wettest summers in Florentine history, which meant that as Leonardo was applying his wax pigments to the wall, they weren't drying. It was too hot. So the wax started to melt. And then, of course, the rain would come and it would mess up the consistency of the wax. And then the wax would harden, but in places that Leonardo didn't want it to harden. So the entire project got scuttled soon after Leonardo began. Now, there is an effort afoot by some to argue that you can still see sections of Leonardo's painting. But in order to find those sections, you're going to have to tear down a wall that's currently in the Palazzo Vecchio that has paintings by another artist already on it. So there's great reluctance to do that. Hmm. But those are just a couple of examples of where Leonardo's experiments got him into trouble. But there are some others, too. What was his interest with the anatomy as it relates to his artwork? Yeah, so, so Leonardo produced a number of portraits. The ones that are, I think, securely attributed to him are all of women. So, so that's a thing to, to, to think about with Leonardo. He, he was charged the task primarily of producing the likenesses, we think, of the wives and mistresses of Italian men which was not an entirely uncommon thing. Um, so Leonardo began uh, uh, producing these pictures in the 1470s in Florence. And when you look at them, you realize that Leonardo is really kind of following a traditional method of applying pigment to surface and trying to produce a human face. And by that, I mean, there's a sort of um, artistic template that artists had been trained to follow. They had been doing these drawings that had been passed down from generation to generation. Um, if you think of a Botticelli painting or you think of uh, a painting by Frangelico or Fra Filippo Lippi, there's a certain kind of approach to painting a human face, where the cheekbones are gonna go, how the chin is produced in relation to the nose, et cetera, et cetera. Well, Leonardo's paintings in the 1470s reveal this. The figures are unquestionably beautiful but you know, you're looking at a painted form. When you get into the 1490s, 20 years later, Leonardo's figures are very different. His faces look like they're, they're almost photographs mm. because Leonardo had figured out that those traditional methods of painting the face were again, based more on tradition than they were on the true nature of the human body. So the thing that made those pictures of the 1490s so different from the pictures of the 1470s, and they are radically different, 
has to do with the anatomical drawings that Leonardo produced in the 1480s, in between those two periods. Hmm. So those drawings, as I'm sure we're going to get into now, those drawings really inform the way that Leonardo approached his figures. Um, and before before we get there, um, why do you think Leonardo focused more on painting women when it came to the anatomy and avoided men? Um, I, I think this was uh, more a question of patronage. So Leonardo da Vinci had to abide by the different commissions that came to him. He would not just sit down in front of an easel and paint you know, a, ma- a man's face just because he felt like it. You know, he, he had to get paid. Um, so I think the patrons are, are really where, we're, where we have to look. Hmm. Um, and, and really the first true patron that he had, the first person who really trusted him to do a number of works was uh, the, the uh, uh, power figure in Milan named Ludovico Sforza, who ultimately became the Duke of, of Lombardy. But that wasn't until Leonardo had reached his, his 30th birthday. Before that, he was, you know, just a regular guy in Florence painting whatever pictures came his way. Um, and the only real portrait that he produced in the 1470s in Florence was of a, a young woman who turns out to have been something of a poet and the muse of other poets. To this day, we're not entirely sure who commissioned the picture, but hmm. but clearly it was you know somebody who valued uh, her likeness. For someone new to uh, Leonardo's work, um, how would you compare and then and then other um, peers, whether contemporary at that time or before him? How would you compare his artwork of the anatomy to to peers in quality? It's absolutely and fundamentally different. In which way? Uh, well, so so. All right, let, let me give you this example. Mm-hmm. Um, Leonardo in the late 1480s. I think almost out of desperation because things were not going very well for him then. Leonardo began producing a number of drawings of human skulls. And he did these drawings with great detail because he was a spectacular draftsman, of course, having been trained as an artist. But he was drawing these skulls and teeth and eye sockets and, you know, the nose hole. Um, the ear hole. I mean, he was doing these these uh, uh, skeletal drawings of skulls. I think not because he hoped to be a medical scientist. That was never Leonardo's trajectory. I think Leonardo was producing anatomical drawings because he wanted to be a better artist than all of his competitors. So this gets to your question. Hmm. In Leonardo's period, his contemporaries were still producing figures that had more to do with a stylized approach to the human body and the human face than they did to actual natural qualities. So so we have now a long and lengthy and healthy guild tradition in which boys are going into workshops and they're learning how to paint figures a certain way from their masters. And if you deviate from that, you get punished. So there's really very little opportunity to innovate. It does happen, but it happens very, very gradually and almost always within the confines 
of a predetermined understanding of what a body's supposed to look like. Moreover, um, the nude form hasn't yet quite become um, overly popular. Not to say that you won't find nude forms, but in a purely religious context, altar pieces rarely will show human flesh, certainly not the nude female form. You will find nude male torsos, but even then they tend to be relegated to specific you know, religious moments. So, so in other words, artists don't really have a whole lot of practice producing a human body the way that it actually appears in nature. Mm. Well, Leonardo, I think, wanted to do something differently, not just because he was curious, and he was, and not because he had a scientific mind, because he did, but I think it's because Leonardo wanted a leg up on the competition. I, wanted to, I think he wanted to do things differently. And, and, and understanding the human anatomy from the inside out, I think was his leg up. How did he learn um, about the, the anatomy? What was his uh, practices of study? Um, one of the great misconceptions of the period is that there were no dissections being done. Um, the church certainly frowned on dissections. However, uh, you know, medical schools were performing dissections uh, a few times a year. We, you know, like three or four times a year, a professor of anatomy would, would bring forth a cadaver. Uh, uh, medical students would sit around in a big amphitheater and watch the, the professor cut up a cadaver and describe what he was doing. Leonardo was not doing this. Um, he was not a medical student. And that, I think, actually helped him because it would have confined him to that traditional approach to studying anatomy from a distance. Okay. Instead, you know, Leonardo had this very creative mind. Um, we want to think of him as the quintessential Renaissance man. I do not think that is the case. Leonardo explicitly condemns humanistic thought that was very popular during the Renaissance. And his big criticism was that these humanists were running around reading and quoting the ancients and only reading and quoting the ancients and not thinking for themselves. So Leonardo famously writes that, you know, you've got to be critical. You have to examine what the ancients were saying and then deductively decide if they were right or wrong. And you humanists are running around inductively trying to prove all those ancient writers were right. And that's just not the way to do it. So Leonardo's, because Leonardo was not classically trained, he did not feel as though he was forced to abide by the traditional modes of education that other people had to abide by. Moreover, because Leonardo was working in the court of the Sforza family in Milan, and was basically being ignored by his patron and permitted to do whatever he wanted, Leonardo was afforded the luxury of exploring the topics that he wanted to. Again, I think the, his interest in anatomy originated with his desire to improve upon the works of his uh, rivals in art, but I think it ultimately came to, uh, to be a a, a, a singular subject in and of its own right. I think ultimately Leonardo decided that, you know, he was going to study anatomy just because he wanted to know. Now, here's what he would do. Um, although we're not sure how he did it at first in Milan, but later on in Florence, in the early 16th century, when he had left Milan, 
Leonardo positioned himself in a hospital in Florence. Hospital is called Santa Maria Nuova, and it's still there today. It's still a functioning hospital. And there, Leonardo, he writes about this. Leonardo would befriend the patients who were in the hospital who were waiting to die. And he would interview them. And then after they died, he would cut them open to see what actually had gone on. So this is really interesting. He was sort of listening to the diagnosis, the self-diagnosis of the patient, hmm. and then he was going in to check on it to see if they were really right. And he describes what it was like, Andrew, and it's pretty grisly. You know, he, he warns people in this, in this little diary note that I'm sure he thought nobody would ever read. You know, he, he says, you know, you need to prepare yourself for what you're going to find. You know, do this work in January and February when it's cold so the body won't decompose very quickly. Make sure you have assistants there who will hold the flaps of flesh open so you can root around in the body. Make sure you have buckets in the room so that your assistant can vomit into them because he surely will. Um, but then he says, you also have to have multiple pieces of paper with you because you'll start doing drawings of one organ or one part of, of what you've cut open but then the fluid will build up to the point where you can't see anymore or some stuff will, will slop over onto your, onto your paper and it'll, it'll get so wet that you can't draw on it. So now you've got to get a new sheet of paper and draw something else. So, you know, he actually describes the process, which is absolutely fascinating. And you get this sense of a guy who's um, almost kind of OCD about this process. He's, He's really literally plunging his hands into into foreign territory and he's willing to sacrifice his own comfort, certainly, um, and decorum in some ways to do things that nobody else before him had been able to do. And that's one of the big things about Leonardo to remember when it comes to his anatomical studies. Mm. No doctor before him, no medical professor before him had had his gifts as a draftsman. So when they were doing those dissections in anatomy class, nobody had it in their toolkit to be able to do the drawings of those organs that were being pulled out of the cadaver. Mm -hmm. Likewise, no artist in his right mind would want to cut up a body and start digging through it. So Leonardo was this wonderful combination of the two. And if you don't have the great artist, then you don't have those anatomical drawings and if you don't have the great scientist, you don't have the curiosity that leads the artist into the body. Hmm. And that was a long-worded answer, sorry. It was an excellent answer. Um, were the autopsies done uh, with permission or surreptitiously? Great question. Um, early on in Milan and then in Florence in, in, in midlife when he was in his 40s and 50s, Leonardo uh, appears to have been able to convince the powers that be to, to grant him access to cadavers. Again, you know, if you're working in a hospital and you're interviewing 100-year-old men, as Leonardo did, you can only do that under the sanction of the hospital officials. But then, interestingly, Leonardo wound up late in his life um, working in the Vatican. One of his patrons was the brother of the Pope. And Leonardo apparently was, was continuing his anatomical studies, 
but now had to do it kind of, you know, behind closed doors. He had to be a little bit secretive about it because uh, church teachings argued that dissecting cadavers uh, of, you know, quote unquote, good Christians was diabolical and, and was something of a crime. And we know that that Leonardo got denounced by somebody in the papal court for doing his scientific studies, including some of his anatomical ones. Hmm. Now, I find this really interesting, Andrew, because there are moments when Leonardo does things and and you kind of wonder, what were you thinking? You were in the heart of, of the Catholic Church and you're cutting up a corpse. You know, what What? What mm. possessed you to do that? <laughs> Didn't you know that somebody would be angry? Come on. And so there, there are times when I think that Leonardo, okay, there are times I think Leonardo is kind of, kind of on the spectrum. I think he doesn't quite always get how people are going to respond to him, which is why I think he gets in trouble with the authorities sometimes. I don't think Leonardo is always clued in on on human cues. I really don't. Hmm. He spent uh, the later years and died in France. Did he do any artwork in in France? And if so, uh, how did his how would that artwork compare to artwork done in Italy? Leonardo, we know, brought at least four paintings with him to France when he left Rome in 1516. And we know this because a cardinal came to visit him in France in 1517, and he listed the four paintings that Leonardo had, Mm -hmm. uh, three of which still survive, and one of them is the Mona Lisa. So Leonardo brought that with Mm -hmm. him to France. But when he got there, Leonardo would have been in his 60s, 64. And we're told that he basically had stopped painting by then. We think that he he uh, drew some theatrical sets, which Leonardo had done for a long time. He, he made a living in Milan doing that. Hmm. Uh, he drew costumes for these performances. But we also know that probably by about 1517, Leonardo suffered a stroke. And that essentially uh, incapacitated him for the rest of his life. Okay. So the, the short answer to your question is, no, he really did not produce any major monumental works when he was in France. Okay. Is there one or two pieces of his artwork that you want to cite and describe some of the um, parts about it that makes it remarkable from an anatomical perspective? Yeah, so there are two in particular. They're mm-hmm. both portraits that were produced in the 1490s. So, so let me give you a really quick chronology. Leonardo... Um, left Florence probably in 1481, and he went to Milan um, uh, after he had petitioned to join the court there as a military engineer. He wrote a letter to to Ludovico Sforza saying, hire me to be one of your courtiers, get me out of Florence. Um, I I can make weapon of mass destruction for you. I can figure out how to wipe out your enemies on the battlefield. I can also figure out how to create um, uh, uh, water systems, hydraulic systems in your city that will help you in times of pandemic. Um, oh, and by the way, I can paint you a picture if you need me to. Mm. I mean, really, it's kind of an aside. At the very end of this lengthy 
job application that Leonardo writes. So he was in Milan between about 1481 and 1499 when he had to flee in the face of a French invasion. During that time, almost 20 years, Leonardo worked for his patron, Ludovico Sforza, who himself had acquired his title by kind of dubious means. Ludovico's brother was the true Duke of Milan, but he'd been assassinated by the palace guards. Then their mother had acquired control until Ludovico wrested it from her. So Ludovico Sforza was, you know, kind of a questionable character to begin with when Leonardo arrived. And Ludovico, Ludovico didn't really know what to do with Leonardo. Um, Leonardo painted a couple of pictures in the 1480s, one of which was rejected by the patron. They didn't like what he did. And Leonardo ultimately had to go to court, uh, uh, or actually the patron went to court, forcing Leonardo to paint them a new picture, and which he had to do. Um, so Leonardo, in the 1470s, the 1480s, Leonardo's, he's got a kind of a, a wonky career. It's really kind of weird. And it's, again, a reason why I think he turns to the anatomical drawings. But mm-hmm. in the early 1490s, his fortunes change. And they change in part because I think Ludovico Sforza needed somebody to paint a picture of his mistress, a woman named uh, Cecilia Gallarani, whose portrait today is in uh, the Czech Republic. Or no, excuse me, Krakow. I beg your pardon, it's in Krakow. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 and the picture shows uh, the woman, Cecilia, seated in half length with an ermine in her hand. A sort of a, 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 a rodent, <laughs> mm-hmm. for lack of a better term. Mm-hmm. Although ermine, uh, the word ermine, um, uh, I, I, well, Gali is the word for ermine, and her name was Galarana, so, so there's sort of a verbal visual connection mm-hmm. there. Anyway, Leonardo shows her with these very high cheekbones, um, a chin that extends down below the nose a little bit further than you're normally going to see in a portrait from the period. But also he's He's using light and shadow in unusual ways. Leonardo's under the uh, uh, belief, and and he's correct, that the human eye apprehends something only when light strikes it. So if Mm. a figure is in darkness without light, that figure will be covered in, in black. But if you spotlight a certain portion of that object that will be illuminated and leonardo begins to experiment with this quality that you and i would call chiaroscuro or in in an intense way tenebrism by showing cecilia galarani's body emerging out of this blackness with the proportions of her head being being uh, exact i mean it's precise Mm. and it's this is an exploration in which, importantly, Leonardo da Vinci is painting the face and the head from the skull out. So mm. he understands the bone formation underneath that head, and then he puts the flesh on top of it, which is exactly the opposite of what his peers have been trained to do in the workshop method, where nobody was thinking about the skull you're thinking about the, you know, the fleshiness of the cheeks or how the nostrils flare. And Leonardo's saying, no, 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 no. You've got to think about the relationship between the chin 
and you know and the cheekbones um where the eye sockets are in relationship to the nose pattern you know so he's he's basically painting things from the inside out was he creating and, was he creating layers in his paintings as well was he going that that far uh, what do you mean by layers? To, to describe the, the biological, the anatomy. So was he actually painting, let's say, the uh, like the skeleton part of oh. the body and then layering it on with the skin, the tissues, the sinews, etc.? Interesting. And, and I, wish, I wish the answer to that would be yes. I don't think he was. I think he was still um, uh, abiding by those old traditions of figuring out how to make, how to make a, a human figure using... using pigments mm -hmm. as, a, as a replication of what the eye sees mm -hmm. however um i do i do wonder if leonardo was doing sketches and drawings that might have had that layered effect of producing a skull that he might uh, might assume is underneath the sitter's skin and then mapping flesh onto it i could i could see him doing that mm. now there's another one on um, la belle uh, uh ferroniere uh, which is another picture of one of Ludovico Swartz's mistresses from the late 1490s, in which, again, Leonardo does exactly the same thing. He's showing you a human face that is now truly anatomically correct. Mm. And again, it's because he understands cheekbones and he understands where the chin is going to be in relationship to the nose. Um, you know, he's measured teeth. You know, he, he's gone to these great lengths to understand the different proportions and ratios in minute detail, not just the entire human body, but its component parts. So we'll get back to this in a second. But that picture also uses this chiaroscuro quality, this tenebristic emerging of a figure out of darkness into light that still leaves a portion of the figure obscured. And and they're they're almost photorealistic in the way that they they reproduce the human body, um, which again is very different from what he does before those anatomical studies in the 1470s. Now, there's another drawing that you might be interested in. It's called the Vitruvian Man. And it's a drawing that I think just about everybody knows. Um, about 20 years ago, every country in the European Union was asked to submit a design that they wanted to use for the one euro coin. And the drawing or the design was supposed to be something that reflected humanity, but that also emanated from the country of origin. And the Italians chose the Vitruvian man mm. to be the design for the Euro coin. I think that's very telling. Mm -hmm. The Vitruvian man, the Vitruvian man is actually um, a doodle. It's Leonardo da Vinci taking notes on a text by the ancient Roman authority on architecture named Vitruvius. And, and the notes that Leonardo writes down backwards in his script indicate that this section of the text has to do with proportions of the body. How many fingernails will go into a finger? How many fingers will go into a palm? How many palms will go into a, a forearm, et cetera, et cetera. And if you actually look at the drawing very closely, you can see down at the feet, these little little marks that Leonardo has made on the feet to figure out how wide that foot ought to be when you're seeing a foreshortened set of toes looking out at you. So that drawing, a lot of people want to say, is some kind of um, you know philosophical 
statement on, on humanity. Um, it's actually a way to measure buildings by using the proportions of the human body and then comparing those proportions to a physical structure. But that's, I think, an example of Leonardo being quite clever with how to use his understanding of the human body and the proportions of anatomy. Did he know that man personally? No, I don't think so. I think that was just a, an invention. Okay. So when you look back on uh, Leonardo's work, all the study you've, you've done on, on the man, what do you think he was most motivated by? That's an easy one. Money. Hmm. Say more about that. Um, Leonardo was a left-handed gay bastard. And he lived a life where um, he, he needed to have funding. You know, scientists, academics are like that today. You spend just as much time writing grants as you do actually doing the research. Leonardo was always in search of patrons. After 1499, when he had to flee from that patron, Leonardo bumped around Italy, um, aligning himself, I have to tell you, with some of the most unsavory characters of the entire Renaissance, and aligning himself with them because they would pay him for his services. So, you know, he's working for Cesare Borgia, the son of the Pope, who was reputed to have been the most evil man in Europe. He was friends and, and partnered with Machiavelli, who we know has some pretty interesting ideas about politics. Leonardo was working underneath the shadow of probably the most profligate pope in history, Leo X. You know, Leonardo da Vinci, the reason he went to France was, yeah, to get out of Rome, but because he was going to get paid a lot. And, you know, I think this is a, a period we have to remember where um, um, your, your pedigree really matters. Your family name really mattered. Um, Leonardo had neither of those things. He didn't have a pedigree anymore uh, because he'd been forced out of Florence. He didn't have a family name. He was born into a common household, really. Uh, Leonardo really had to make it on his own. And, and he, was, he was doing it in unusually unstable times. He had to escape his home a couple of different mo a couple of different times, either out of because of scandal or because there was an invading army that was knocking on his door and he had to get out of town. Mm -hmm. so, so these were really um, uncertain times. And Leonardo, I think, is really uh, quite concerned about where tomorrow's paycheck is going to come from. Hmm. So closing um, question, how many years did it take for other artists to match this level of excellence when it comes to painting anatomy, anatomies if, if ever? Oh, this is such a good question. All right, I'm going to give you three different parts of an answer. Part number one, um, Leonardo had very few disciples. There were a lot of imitators, but no disciples or few disciples. And that's because Leonardo himself was this prickly character. He didn't, he didn't have very many friends. He did not have a painter's workshop. He didn't have apprentices. So there was really no way for him to teach a new generation of artists how to follow his, his example. So others tried and a couple actually did a pretty good job 
of, of replicating the Leonardo style. But Leonardo was also painting at a moment of great change because one of his peers was a guy named Michelangelo. And Michelangelo, uh, as, as Leonardo was in Rome at the you know, same time as, as Michelangelo, uh, Michelangelo is, is changing the way in which human figures are being represented by artists. Whereas Leonardo had been deeply interested in conveying a kind of ultra-naturalism, Michelangelo is much more interested in showing a, a hyper-naturalism, a kind of mannerism that, that, that exaggerates the human form in an attempt both to um, heighten a message, but also to promote the idea that artists like gods are creators and they can do things differently if they want to. So the irony of the high Renaissance is that it doesn't last very long, that Michelangelo himself, a high Renaissance artist, basically destroys it only a couple of years after Leonardo's death. And that means it would take a long time for painters in Europe to really figure out what Leonardo was all about when it came time to producing the figure. And I would argue that it's probably not until the late 16th century when a trio of artists out of Bologna named the Caracci family, Anibale Caracci, uh, uh, they're the ones I think who really finally figure out what Leonardo's all about. There, mm -hmm. That's not to say that there aren't good painters. Bronzino's an excellent portraitist. Um, Titian has his virtues. Veronese uh, really does understand Leonardo, I think. But it's really not going to be until the very end of the 16th century and then moving into the 17th with Baroque painting that you're really going to find people who, who are genuinely getting what Leonardo's all about. And, and maybe the best of them all mm. is going to be Peter Paul Rubens, who, who might be one of the greatest figure painters of all time. Okay, some uh, names um, for listeners to uh, look into if they're uh, interested in learning more. Thanks for joining the show, George. Andrew, it has been my pleasure, truly. For those listening, if you'd like to pick up either of Dr. Ben's uh, pieces that I referenced at the start of the show, the book Public Painting and Visual Culture in Early Republican Florence, the DVD series Leonardo da Vinci and the Renaissance in Italy. I'll drop links to both those uh, pieces of work in the show notes at the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage uh, to this episode. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe to the podcast. George and everyone listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now.